And it's the thing we ought to do from the scriptures. We're engaged, and I'm just taking a couple of minutes extra here. Uh, we're, we're engaged in a ministry which is at a kind of a critical point right now, not in our church, but in Grace Gospel Publishers. We just had to make an announcement that the Explorer magazine, which has reached 5,000 in circulation right now, is going to, we published the last issue. This last one will be the last one. The one that's uh, out for uh, October, November. And I hate to have to make an announcement like that, but uh, like I said in a little piece in, in Amazing Grace, we decided that um, uh, it's poor business not to pay your bills. And it's also a poor testimony for the Lord not to pay your bills. And so we decided rather than go in debt any further on the magazine, we just have to cut out its publication. Several, several of the men here said, well, why didn't people support it? Well, I don't know why, except that uh, people are not as interested in reaching children with the gospel of grace as I feel they ought to be. And we are sincerely trying to do a job with that magazine. Uh, I don't have much to do with it, frankly, but uh, we do uh, supervise it. And I think it's had a ministry. And uh, I get, we get a lot of mail from people who talk about uh, the blessing that uh, Amazing Grace and uh, the Explorer have been to them. But uh, they, I guess they expect the Lord to rain down some help financially to keep the thing going from heaven. And he doesn't do that. He uses people. And he uses uh, human beings who are holding on to some of the... Uh, material wealth that he's given them. Anyway, to make a long story short, we are uh, at a rather critical point. Now, Amazing Grace will go on, but uh, I just thought I should let you brethren know, I think you would understand what we're trying to do here, and uh, uh, it's, it's, it's just about impossible to buy paper. If you know anything about printing, paper costs have gone skyrocket high, and uh, with the expenses of, of printing now we you know we only have one salaried person in the ggp once in a while we have an extra man who comes in and we have to pay him but outside of that uh, the only ones we pay at all are they is the is the very not the very typist but the typesetter and we have to we have to pay her she's an unsafe person and we have to pay her to do her work but that's all the the help that gets paid rest of us all do this with uh, love in our hearts for the message. That's why we're doing it. And so you pray for that, that the Lord may uh, work out what his plan is. It seems at this point that that's what we're going to have to do. Uh, uh, a lot of times people send in, uh, you know, a, a generous offering, but that takes care of the bills for one issue. And we got another five to go the rest of the year, see. Now, in order to keep a magazine like this going, Mr. Stan can verify this, you just have to have regular contributions. If you don't have that, you just can't operate. And uh, as much as we want to do it, we do take in secular printing, and we have two organizations in the press. One is Great Color Publishers, which is incorporated nonprofit. The other, we have to pay tax on. And so, therefore, 
if it wasn't for the secular work that we do, the printing we do in the press, uh, oh, calling cards and uh, advertisements for businesses and so on, if we couldn't do some of that printing, we'd been out of business a long time ago. Mr. Sam doesn't do any printing hardly, you see. Russ does a little of it, but most of it's sent out. Now they're starting to do more, and I understand that Ricky, that's what Ricky's going to do. But when you have to send stuff out to be printed, it costs money. And uh, I just wanted to share that with you. I'm not going to take any more time complaining. But, uh, you know, I think, it, like I said, if the Lord's in it, it'll, it'll succeed. And if the Lord isn't in it, maybe, maybe, maybe it ought to fail. But you pray for us. Well, again, I say how good it is to have you here, and especially brethren like our brother Bud Wilson. So nice to have you here. Bud's been a good friend of ours for many years and uh, writes for Amazing Grace regularly and very promptly, too, by the way. Harlan and, and Bud Wilson are the two most prompt writers. And I mean, I, I hardly get the thing over to Harlan before I have it, have it already back to me. And uh, that's wonderful for anybody who's trying to carry on a ministry like we're doing. So nice to have you here, Bud. And we hope to see you some more. Now to our subject, and uh, I've been asked, and my wife said to me before I left home, why do they have to ask you to speak all the time? I said, they don't have to, but somehow I get on the program, and I don't know how I got on, except the program committee made this up. I had nothing to do with that. And uh, I'm going to uh, do like uh, Pastor Kathleen, or I'm going to refuse next time. He didn't refuse this time, but I mean... Uh, we were, I'm, he, he knows what I'm talking about. We were kidding. Over uh, uh, let, me, let me just tell you this. He's the program chairman for the conference next summer. And uh, he, he tried to give me three excuses for not taking the job. But we voted him down, and he is the program chairman. And let me give you the theme. I'll, you'd be the first ones to hear it. I told the fellows in the car going over to eat lunch this noon what it was, and I'll tell all of you. The theme, uh, suggested by our brother John Balk, very excellent one, and I say that with, a, with a real appreciation, Brother John. It came to pass, but now. How do you like that? That's a dispensational theme, isn't it? It came to pass. That's the prophetic program. But now, that's Pauline truth. So we're looking forward to a great conference again this year. And uh, Brother Dave Kasslander will do an excellent job. He's picking out the subjects. And we'll have recommendations to the board at our next meeting. All right. Now we'll get to the message. I've been asked to speak on redemption. What a subject. I thought I knew a lot about redemption, or at least something about redemption, but I'll tell you, I've been doing some little digging for this message, and I, uh, I learned a lot myself. And I guess that's true about all of us. When we have to concentrate on a subject, it uh, takes some work, but it's been well worthwhile. I don't suppose I can cover all that the scriptures have to say about redemption in these few minutes but uh, we'll at least give a synopsis of what the 
doctrine is and how it's it's and its place in the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. First of all, let me give you some basic facts about redemption. Redemption is an interdispensational overall term, setting forth what the God of all grace has wrought for the human race. I think that pretty well says it in a few words. Redemption, an interdispensational overall term, setting forth what the God of all grace has wrought for the human race. I don't really think that salvation and redemption are synonymous. Uh, as I understand it, um, redemption is the provision, while salvation is the application of redemption. I think that's right. If I'm not, you can let me know after the meeting. Redemption is threefold in the scriptures. Redemption of the believer, redemption of Israel, and redemption of the world. That's very basic and very simple. Redemption is one of the three great words that describe the work of Christ on the cross. And I certainly believe that it's one of the mercies Paul refers to in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that our brother John Balk has on the program for this conference. Reconciliation toward man. Propitiation toward God. And redemption toward sin. Now that's good Schaefer theology, and I like it. And it's... Uh, it's scriptural and dispensationally correct also. Now, I'm no Greek student, so I'm not going to try to pretend that I am, but uh, I uh, know that there are two words from the same root word, which is translated redemption in the scriptures. One basic meaning is simply to release on the payment of a ransom. And that's the theological definition that you're all familiar with, I know. And I suppose that one of the greatest statements on the subject of redemption, and that's the overall interdispensational term, is found in Hebrews 9:12. Neither by the blood of gold and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once, or once for all, into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. And you'll notice that the last two words, for us, is in italics, which indicates that it was added by the translators. And so it simply is making a statement of the fact that when Christ, by his own blood, entered in once for all into the holy place, he obtained eternal redemption, period. Now, someone has well said, and I don't recall where I got this, but it's not original, of course, the occasion for redemption, here's a good outline for our young preachers, the occasion for redemption was sin. The price of redemption, the precious blood of Christ, 
and the end of redemption, eternal salvation. We're going to limit our remarks this afternoon to redemption of the believer. The believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, I'm referring to. In these days, we've got believers in communism, believers in this and believers in that, and even that term has come into disrepute in some circles. Uh, it's been some time since uh, a lot of, uh, of the Lord's people have rejected the term fundamental. Now they want to be evangelical, and we got new evangelicalism and all of that. And um, there are many now who even misuse the term believer. Now, Paul uses that, and I, I like that. I refer to uh, those who love the Lord as believers. But uh, I've learned that there are believers in a lot of things. So even that term is, is, is really uh, has to be explained, just like the word Christian. I call uh, those who love the Lord saints. I think that's a good Pauline term and something that a lot of people shy away from. Uh, Roman Catholic Church has told us that they made saints out of people after they've been dead for a hundred years or more. We believe, of course, that every true child of God is a saint. And uh, I very often in our services point out saint so-and-so sitting in the audience, you see. And that's right. It's true, isn't it? How wonderful that the Lord looks on us as saints of God. Well, first of all, let's point out that redemption is from the law. Or from law, without the article. I don't think it's just limited to the Ten Commandments. Or the Old Testament definition of law, necessarily. But legalism, I think, would be a better word. Redemption from legalism. Now, we know that, the, that legalism, or the law using it in the general sense now, required perfect obedience and, of course, condemned imperfect obedience. Uh, a couple of verses that come to mind was uh, or is Deuteronomy 6.25, and it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments. A familiar text and one that many of us have turned to in showing people that we're not under the law today. And in Deuteronomy 27, and I'm giving you these locations in case you want to write them down. Deuteronomy 27, 26, a curse is pronounced upon all those who are disobedient to the law. Now, this was given, of course, to Moses and the people of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 21, 23, we read, Cursed is he that hangeth on a tree. And the Apostle Paul quotes that Old Testament verse, in Galatians 3.10. And then James adds, he that is guilty of breaking one point of the law is guilty of all. That is a deflator for some people who have been hoping to be saved by doing good things and keeping uh, the Ten Commandments like a man said to me in the hospital. Some, oh, it's been a year or two ago now, I went in to see one of our people and Right next to him in the other bed was another man who was so sick they couldn't hardly leave him. And I went over and I introduced myself to him and I said, I'm a pastor and I'd like to know uh, 
if uh, you attend church anywhere, that's usually my opening remark to them. And uh, that reveals a lot, the way they answer that question. He says, no, I don't go to church, but he says, I live by the Ten Commandments. Now, if he hadn't been so sick, I would have told him that uh, that's an impossibility and that uh, no one has ever been able to observe even uh, one of the Ten Commandments perfectly. And uh, But he was so sick, I didn't want to get into a discussion with him there, but I thought, what a pitiful thing to get to almost the end of your life, and I think he looked like he was ready to leave any time. I say ready to leave. He wasn't really ready. But he was going to leave the way it appeared. And here he was trusting and keeping the Ten Commandments. And he said, I just, I just uh, am doing the best I can, and I'm living by the Ten Commandments. What a tragic thing. But there are multitudes of people who are well and healthy and in their right mind and who are uh, enjoying life, at least from a material standpoint, who have no idea that salvation is not by trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Now, Paul, uh, the question might be asked, since Gentiles were never given the law, why should the Apostle Paul speak about redemption from the law? Now, why would he do that? We'll see that in a moment. In what sense are believers today in this age redeemed from legalism? Let's look at Galatians 3.13. And I don't expect this is anything new to most of you. You're so familiar with this, and uh, you should be. But I'm just reviewing some great basic truths. Galatians 3.13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made or having become, the Revised says, and the tense of the verb is evidently in the past, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now, uh, Christ, the sinless, spotless Son of God, was made a curse for us. What was the curse of breaking the law? Death. Christ died for our sins, we quote and we say all the time. And that's true. Christ died for our sins. And he died for the penalty of sin, which is death. And that's what he's referring to here, I believe, in verse 13 of Galatians 3. The curse of the law was condemnation, first of all, and then death. And Christ bore these, this curse for every single one of us. Now, you can tell that I don't believe in what we call, or what we here call, limited atonement. Uh, I'm very much opposed to that. I uh, I just feel that uh, I wouldn't be honest with an audience if I stood up and told them that Christ died for their sins and if he really didn't. So I tell that to our audience Sunday after Sunday. And uh, we have unsaved people that come in regularly. 
if I told them that Christ did not die for certain ones, or if I thought in my heart that Christ didn't die, I would really be dishonest with my audience. And so I just can't do that. Now, I know that there's some difference of, of convictions here among our brethren, and I don't, I'm not uh, making any uh, slurring remarks at any individuals. I'll assure you that. But I just want you to make, I want to make clear my own convictions on this matter. I believe with all my heart that the provision has been made. The provision is unlimited, but the application is limited. Now, does that make sense? The provision is unlimited. The application is limited. Now, you think that too, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll explain it to you afterwards. May I say also that where the penalty of the broken law and you see even though we're not given the law in this age I know that yet God's perfect standard is set forth in, in the Ten Commandments and in, in the law in general condemns every one of us doesn't it that's what Paul says in Romans 3 and I am convinced in my own heart that uh, all men have failed to measure up to that perfect standard, and you know that too. Not only are believers redeemed from the law, but they're also redeemed from the bondage of the law. And that's a little different. In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, we read, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under law and there's no article there I understand made under law to redeem them that were under law the article is missing in both places in these verses as I understand it that we might receive the adoption or the the, the adoption of sons or sonship it could be translated that we might receive sonship now, I know that Galatians in particular has to be, uh, you know what I've said, and uh, you may not agree with this, but that's all right. I have said that Galatians and Hebrews needs to be studied together a little bit. Uh, many things that are very similar here. And um, uh, Paul here in Galatians uh, puts himself with the people of Israel in some of his um, uh, pronouns. He says, we, and then he says, ye. Now, as I see Galatians, and I've taught Galatians at least once, um, I don't know a lot about it, but I'm learning. And it seems to me that uh, there must have been a, a lot of Jewish believers among those in Galatia, and maybe some who hadn't really come out in saving faith yet. They had perhaps had... Uh, uh, a departure from uh, Judaism in the sense that they left the tabernacle or the temple and uh, the sacrifices and so on, but they had not gone on to saving faith, as I believe Hebrews is saying. But anyway, be that as it may, it, uh, it needs to be remembered when you study the book of Galatians that you have this thing to contend with, as I understand it, other way. We have been redeemed from the bondage of the law, from legalism, from trying to please God 
by our own self-efforts. In Philippians 3.9, the apostle gives his, gives his testimony, and you're familiar with that verse, where he says, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, or which is of law. I'm not sure about the article in that verse, but if it's simply of law, he's referring to legalism. And that sounds exactly what trying to be righteous in your own self is talking about. That's legalism, isn't it? And he says, but the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, a lot of people are trying to be saved by their own doing. Multitudes of people. We've got them out in Colorado. We've got them everywhere I turn. I meet those kind of people. And some who go to church every Sunday. I'm just afraid that they have never really come to understand what the grace of God is all about. Anyway, Paul says we've been redeemed from the law that we might receive adoption as sons. In Galatians 6.14, he also says, you are not under law, but under grace. Now, all of us know that the law demanded righteousness. But as someone has so well said, and which we've all heard, the righteousness which the law demanded, grace bestows. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans 8, 4, where we are told that when we are yielded to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit produces the righteousness which the law demanded. The righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk after the Spirit. Now, that's a Spirit-filled walk. It's a godly walk. It's a walk yielded, a life yielded to the Lord and a walk pleasing to the Lord. Now, I, uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, do we don't have any relationship to the law at all, do we, members of the body? I've heard great preachers say that. But I, I uh, you know, I read Romans 8, 1 to 4, and I just, I realize that uh, there's something about the law that uh, we have a relationship to. And it's the righteousness which the law demanded, as I understand it. And uh, it seems to me that... Uh, when we say that uh, we have, we ought to throw the Ten Commandments out the window, I've heard people say that. Preachers say that. No, no. The righteousness of God expressed in the law is fulfilled in us who walk after the Spirit. In Romans 7, 4, Paul makes this statement about the law, and he says, Ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Now, I'm going to put, add a couple of words to make the sense here. Ye also are become dead to the law and its demands by the crucified body of Christ. You see, it's the work of Christ upon the cross, nailing the demands of the law upon all men, that makes us free and redeemed from the law. 
And then in 1 Corinthians 1.30, we read that redemption is one of the ways in which God demonstrates his wisdom. Let's turn to that. 1 Corinthians 1.30, that's a familiar verse also. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom. Now, again, I'm not trying to show off any intelligence here, but as I understand looking up the words, and I, I sincerely try to look up all the words to be sure that I see how the Holy Spirit uses them. And Mr. Weist, who was a real authority on the Greek language, points out that the grammatical instruction here could be even, even, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, the definition of God's wisdom here is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And, I, and that sounds right to me. I believe it's correct. This is God's wisdom, and redemption is one of those characteristics which demonstrates God's wisdom. There's any doubt about that in my mind at all. Then, of course, we are redeemed from the clutches of sin and from sin itself. Now, the redemption from sin, of course, is well illustrated in the Old Testament. We have it in the history of the children of Israel, Exodus 12 and 14. Two aspects of redemption. First of all, redemption by blood, and then in Exodus 14, redemption by the power of God. And that is a picture of our redemption, is it not? We too, in this age, are redeemed by blood, the precious blood of Christ. And we're redeemed by the power of the Spirit. You see, if the work of Christ on our behalf was not made powerful and effective in our lives. Uh, it, it couldn't be made effective, is what I want to say, apart from the power of the Spirit. You know, a lot of people have a knowledge of these things. They know all about us, but they have never experienced the power of the new birth in their hearts and lives. And of course, Redemption by power is certainly the way we're redeemed today, too. But with, uh, the, the, the redemption of Israel was a physical one, wasn't it? Primarily. They were, their lives were spared in the, the 12th chapter by the blood over the doorpost and on the lintel. While when they were redeemed from the uh, uh, invading armies of Egypt that came after them at the Red Sea in Exodus 14. God redeemed them physically by his power and spared their lives. And uh, they experienced redemption in this twofold aspect, which is the same as our redemption. It's a kind of a, a, a picture of our redemption today. We're redeemed, first of all, by the penalty of sin, or from the penalty of sin. From Genesis 2.17 to Revelation 20.15, the penalty of sin is death. 
In the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die, God told Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 2.17. And Revelation 20.15, where it says, And whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. From all the, 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 the time period from Genesis 2.17 to Revelation 20.15, and all of the events that took place in between, the penalty of sin has always been death. That's one of those mutable doctrines in Scripture. I was preaching recently at home on 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, and I pointed out that there is three kinds of doctrines spoken of in Scripture. Immutable doctrine, mutable, and sound doctrine. And uh, I thought, as I was looking at the doctrine of God and the doctrine of sin, those are two mutable doctrines. They never change. Never change. Doctrine of God, it hasn't changed one iota from Genesis 1-1 to the end of the Revelation. The doctrine of sin remains the same also. There are some Mutable doctrines that do change. I, excuse me, I got the word mixed. I meant immutable. Mutable means changeable. Immutable means not changeable. That's what I'm talking about. The doctrine of God and, of course, the doctrine of sin are immutable doctrines. They never change. But anyway, Ezekiel 18.4, in the middle of the Old Testament, says, the soul of sinner that shall die. We don't have to wait till we get to Romans 6.23 to learn that the wages of sin is death, but there it is. Uh, in James 1.15, sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. And it's not just um, physical death, that's part of it, but it's spiritual death and it's eternal death. We teach our people that the scripture speaks of three kinds of death, physical, spiritual, and eternal. And uh, all men will one day die. The only thing that can prevent it is the rapture. Uh, however, all men are also spiritually dead, apart from the grace of God, aren't they? Pastor O'Hare used to say, millions now... He says, there's a cult that says millions now living shall never die. O'Hara used to say, millions now living are already dead. And that's right. Dead in trespasses and sins. Lots of people, like you've heard preachers say this, walking around to save funeral expenses. Maybe some of us are doing that. Oh, listen. People dead all around us. And of course there are those who shall experience eternal death. What an awful prospect for those who rejected God's way of salvation. But Christ paid the penalty. And first, or first Peter, first of all, first Peter 1, 18 and 19, Peter uh, sets forth the... Um, 
price that was paid for redemption. Familiar verses to all of us. I, I know this is nothing new, but it's uh, a little review of some basic truths that we are all familiar with. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vast, or from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now I'd like to just say, because this is found in 1 Peter, let's not throw it out the window. Uh, I know that that's... Uh, not body truth, but it's truth for the body, like Pastor Baker says. I always remember that, brother. I'm going to always keep that back here. Uh, body truth or truth for the body. Uh, you see? Now, this is what I call an interdispensational truth. This is the price paid for redemption. And uh, we need never forget it. Paul says the same thing, doesn't he, in Ephesians 1, 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Let me say that the precious blood of Christ had to be shed in order for anyone to be saved in any age or during any dispensation. And I have said to our BBI class in Denver that the wonderful thing about salvation in this age is that we are saved by faith in the simple, finished work of Christ and his precious shed blood. But... In the Old Testament, they were saved by the blood of Christ also. In what way? By the merits of the blood of Christ that was going to be shed. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 3 again. And it was because of what Christ was going to do that he could forgive their sins back there under the law and before. I'm so glad for that wonderful truth. And... Uh, I, uh, you know, I'm old enough so I can remember when, when the Methodists took all the songs about the blood out of their hymn book. I've met some dear Methodist people who love the Lord. They were in, kind of enduring to the end, but uh, they love the Lord nevertheless. And I know it must have broken their heart when uh, the denomination took all the songs about the blood out of the book. Now, some of you, that was long before you were born, so you won't even remember it. But I remember when they took them out. And uh, I remember I was a young student at Moody at the time. And I remember that Moody Bible Institute said, what a tragedy that they have removed all the hymns with the blood in it. Never find power in the blood or nothing but the blood in any Methodist hymn book today. Well, I'm not just picking on the Methodists. I'll tell you there are plenty others who are in the same boat. So, the blood is not a popular way of salvation to the great majority of people. And uh, when you talk about the precious blood of Christ, uh, 
Only those who are truly born again know what you're really talking about. In Titus 2, 13 and 14, the apostle again says that Jesus Christ gave himself that he might redeem us from all iniquity. All iniquity. Now, iniquity, in this case, I think is, I believe it's trespass, if I'm not mistaken, the, the word. And whether it's trespass or whether it's sin, whether it's uh, 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 getting off the track or getting sidetracked, getting off the, the path, or whether it's missing the mark. I know that sin means missing the mark, basically. Uh, both of those have been taken care of by the precious blood of Christ, and it's only simple faith in that finished work which will redeem men from uh, the terrible consequences of sin and rejecting God's way of salvation. But we're also redeemed from the power of sin. Um, first of all, from the law of the sin nature. I referred to Romans 8. Let's go back to it for a moment. Romans 8, 2 and 3. Let's read verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit, that is, of life in Christ Jesus, hath made me free from the law of the sin nature and death. I think he's talking about the sin nature there. Free from the law of the sin nature and death. Now, what's the law of the sin nature and death? Well, as I understand it, I would say that it was it was, um, that law was passed in the Garden of Eden. When, when the Lord said, In the day that ye eat thereof, you will surely die. And it's never been repealed. Still there. The law of the sin nature and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak or powerless through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of and I, I, you know, here, it isn't the likeness of sinful flesh, but the likeness of the flesh of sin. Yeah, I think it's correct. And as an offering for sin, notice the Schofield margin, condemned the sin nature in the flesh. You see, the sin nature is condemned. Now, we discussed this sin nature in the old man and all that last year, remember? And the brethren kind of... Uh, shot me down there. But, you know, I've been thinking about it and I've been doing some studying and I'm more convinced now than I was a year ago that I'm right. So nobody really killed me on that one. But they tried. I, I mean in a nice way. No, I'm just as sure as I'm standing here that the sin nature and the old man are not synonymous. There's a relationship, I agree. But I do not think that they're the same. Paul says that the old man is dead. He's crucified. Romans 6, 6. But he says the sin nature, or the old nature, either one, whichever, whichever way, term you want to use, is condemned. Not dead, but it's condemned. And seeing the distinction here has really helped me, I'll tell you. 
I meet all kinds of dear people who I'm just sure are all mixed up here. They've never really reckoned themselves to be dead unto the sin nature. Now, what is it that's dead? It's the old man that's dead to the sin nature. The old man, as Mr. Weiss says, is that person I was before I was saved. You remember that person? I remember him. I was saved when I was 15, so I was just pretty much of a kid. But I remember that rebellious, wicked, sinful heart that I had and my attitude and everything. Oh, I just couldn't get, couldn't stand having to meet a preacher or get under the sound of the gospel. I just wanted to get away from it as far as I could get. The rest of this message is on side two. Please turn your tape over at this point. But when I trusted the Lord, things changed. But I didn't really appropriate the fact that I had died with Christ until some time afterwards. It's been some years afterward, in fact. I'm so sorry to say that, but it's true. But the old Wynn Johnson's in the grave, and I want to keep him there by faith every day. Moment by moment. God says he's in the grave. Why should I go around carrying him on my back? I said last year that they, you know, or you've heard this too, that um, it was the custom in the Old Testament days for some criminal to, uh, who had murdered someone to carry the corpse on his back. They tied the corpse on his back. They didn't bury it, they just put it on his back. And he had to walk around with it till it rotted off. I've heard that illustration. I don't know whether that's authentic, but I think it is. And I've often thought, isn't it true that some of us, even us preachers sometimes, have gone around with that old man strapped to our back, and then we wonder why we're so unvictorious and so unusable for the Lord. I want to keep him in the grave. And how do you do that? By faith. By faith. I don't die daily, you know. You ever hear that expression? Oh, that really bothers me. And I see I see stuff advertised in magazines. I, I just... Well, what, where was it I saw that? Moody Monthly? I get Moody Monthly. Was, was that, I showing that to you, Harlan, or...? Yeah, that's right. I saw it there, all right. But he wasn't talking about that death. My friend Harlan's giving me a little rib here. That's all right. That's right. Paul said it. But why Why transfer it over to Romans 6? Doesn't belong there at all. Well, anyway. The old man is dead. It's been some time ago when I reckoned, reckoned him to be dead. And I just want him kept in the grave experientially. And if I do, you know what? I'll be victorious. When I let him out, and 
some of my brother, Mr. Sam included, said, but I don't like that idea of him coming out all the time. Now listen. Positionally, he doesn't come out. Experientially, he does. Or why would you be tempted? Sin nature doesn't do a thing to the new man. Never does a thing to him. He couldn't, couldn't phase him. But he sure gives the old man trouble. The old man just loves it. But I can keep him in the grave by faith. Now, I'm kind of reviewing last year's message. Excuse me for going back to that. But I just wanted to tell you that. <laughs> you know, you brethren who are new to this conference will know that the brethren all kind of talk about their favorite subjects here and there. And uh, we put up with that. You have to put up with me, too, this one time. Um, I remember one time we were, and I'm going to close in a minute, we parked our car in front of our, we were renting at the time, before we had our new building. We were renting down downtown Denver. And I parked my car out in front, it was, it was a one-way street, and I went out after the service to get in the car, and you know, I put what I thought was the car in, it was before I had the automatic transmission, so I put it in, in, in first, and the car backed up instead. And try as I would, I couldn't get that car out of reverse. It was in reverse gear, and I could just picture myself trying to drive home in reverse. And I said to one of our men, what am I going to do? That car won't go forward. Oh, he says, lift up the hood. And uh, he reached in there and he grabbed a hold of something. I don't know what he did. And do you know that I got the thing out of reverse and I was able to go ahead? At least I got to the gas station. Well, the fellow could fix it. But I thought after many times since that, I'll tell you, when we're unsaved, our lives are locked in reverse. And we can't do a thing about it. There we are, going in the wrong direction. If we had deliverance or redemption from the power of sin in our lives, we'd be able to go ahead. Christ has provided it. And it's up to us to appropriate it. I said I'll be through in a minute. i got a couple more points, but I have to skip those. You notice I didn't leave any time for discussion at all here? Uh, <laughs> chairman of the meeting can do that, see? Uh, I have here redemption from the presence of sin. Oh, what a day that's going to be. You know when that's going to be? At the rapture. And uh, uh, Romans 8.23 speaks about the redemption of the body. You could say and take another hour for that. But you see, all of these are blessed truths, all related to redemption as it concerns the believer in this age. And the Holy Spirit is our guarantee that God's final aspect of redemption will yet be taken care of in our lives. In the meantime, you know what the psalmist said? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And you can say so. Let's have a moment of prayer. Our Father, we pray thy blessing upon our fellowship and these simple thoughts and our brethren who shall speak later. Make this a very blessed and wonderful conference and may Christ be honored through it all. 
we ask in his name. Amen.